The following is a message from Reverend Ken Belden of Wellsprings Congregation. There is in the Jewish tradition um, practice called Midrash, which is a way of analyzing the sacred scriptures, the Torah and the other Jewish scriptures that kind of draws out the meaning within them. It's a hundreds of years old practice, a couple thousand years almost. And it's the rabbis engaging with the text in a way that they're kind of reading in the spaces. What's not said and drawing forth from that well of meaning of what has not been mentioned already. So um, one of my favorite uh, midrash is actually a feminist midrash that's relatively recent. Some of you know the story of the binding of Isaac. In that story, it's when Abraham is commanded to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. It's one of the most uh, troubling stories in the entire biblical passage, and there are many of them. And so it's said that Abraham takes his son, Isaac, his only beloved son, goes up to, I think it's Mount Moriah, and prepares to sacrifice him. And God's voice booms in and says, don't. Well, this feminist Midrash reinterprets the story to actually say the moment before Abraham's blade was going to come down and sacrifice his only son, it was Sarah's voice, not God, that boomed out and said, Abraham, wake up. I love that Midrash. There's something about it that rings more clear and more true to me. So today I'm going to offer a Midrash on the Sneetches. Dr. Seuss's story of, well, we'll see what the story is about in just a second. Many of us know it already. Um, it's part of our series that we're doing here called Stories with Soul. And the way that Reverend Lee and I are doing this series is we're integrating with Carol Breslin, who's the director of our Youth uh, Spirit, our coordinator of our Youth Spirit programs. And she's going to be also doing the Sneetches as well. So I want to encourage you, those of you who have kids or will be around kids who have been in Youth Spirit today, ask them what they learned about the Sneetches. And you can share with them what you've learned and see if you can engage the conversation in this way. So these right here are Sneetches. One of them, you'll see, has a star belly. The other does not. One is, well, we can't quite call them, this particular Sneetch, happy. Maybe arrogant is more like it. And the other Sneetch really looks glum and depressed. Now, the star-bellied Sneetches had bellies with stars, but the plain-bellied Sneetches had none upon theirs. No stars on their bellies, no stars upon theirs. Now, those stars weren't so big. They were really quite small. You would think such a thing wouldn't matter at all. But it does. It is the whole basis of their culture, a culture built upon exclusion and denigration of those who are different. The star-bellied Sneetches gather, hoard, you could say, all the resources, which, according to Dr. Seuss, appear to be marshmallow toast and frankfurter roast, which are really important in this culture, and they hoard them all and do not invite those who do not have stars upon theirs to their parties. So this society, which is an unhappy one, seems to be going along at least in a uh, kind of stasis. Until this character shows up. See the one in the middle there, the one collecting all the money? That is Sylvester McMonkey McBean. And he shows up with his star on machine. See, he prom- Ah! 
<laughs> it's been a while, yes. <laughs> this is why we do this series, because it's been a while for all of us. And Sylvester McMonkey McBean promises to offer those sneeches without stars on their bellies, stars. And the sneeches who were born with stars on their bellies, with stars upon theirs, do not like this. They lose their special status, and all hell breaks loose. Until eventually, Sneeches are going through the star on machine and then right out of it into the star off machine. And it's just this circle. And you'll see, if you put that picture back up, this big pile of cash that someone is getting rich off of all this misery. And after he has earned as much as he can, Sylvester McMonkey McBean drives away with this one last sentence. You can't teach a sneech. But something happens. In the midst of their chaos and their upset and the upending of the stasis of what had been true and unjust before, but had been true for a very long time, apparently, something happens. These sneeches, stars on, stars off, stars on their back, three stars in their belly, no stars at all, stars on their butt, all stars, no stars, they reconcile with each other. What happens? This is where the Midrash helps. How could they possibly reconcile with each other? They embraced the chaos. They embraced how crazy-making their system was. They finally got to know it. And here's the thing. Those without stars upon theirs were miserable for a long time under this system. It was only when those who thought they were at the top, who thought they were the norm and the standard and those who had all the power, really engaged how crazy making this was, that they could wake up to how it exhausted all of them and then they could change. So I have a confession to make. I have been trained. I have been raised. I have been educated in this culture as a star-bellied snitch. I'm white. I grew up affluent. My expression of gender matches the biological sex that I was born as. I'm heterosexual. I am in so many ways a star-bellied snitch. In other ways, I'm not. I'm a person in recovery. I'm a person who has struggled with mental health and mental illness. I'm a person who grew up outside of the dominant religion in this country, which is Christianity. In many important ways, though, according to the dominant identities and ideologies of this culture, I am very much a star-bellied snitch. That is the lens I bring to this midrash, to this interpretation today. And particularly to this moment of being alive. See, because there is an awful lot of chaos in our world. And there are those who would say, particularly those star-bellied sneeches, a lot of people like me who are not committed to at least trying to wake up, who would say it is the chaos caused by those 
who are talking about the stuff we don't want to talk about. But that is not the case at all. The chaos is simply caused, I believe, by what happens when unsustainable systems built upon cruelty and exclusion start to recognize that they are, in fact, unsustainable. One of the reasons that I am preaching on the Sneetches today is because I have been invited to, many Unitarian Universalist congregations have been invited to, by people of color within our faith tradition. See, some of you might know, if you've been paying attention, it even wound up in the Washington Post, that there has been, some would say, a controversy. Some other folks would say just a moment of revelation that our hiring practices at the denominational level, especially for an association of congregations that aspires towards anti-racism and anti-oppression, that we have not been living out our faith or our values on that level because too often the hires at the denominational level have reflected well, for the purposes of this message, star-bellied Sneech values. And I got to tell you, you know, there's always a tendency when you've lived inside of star-bellied Sneech life to want to pretend that there's no problem, that this is just a blip. But in fact, the biggest problem with our world and the essence of privilege itself is pretending that there's no problem. And so actually, I don't think today or this moment in Unitarian Universalism or this moment in our world, because Unitarian Universalism is part of the larger culture, we're not separate from it. I don't think what's happening is a controversy right now. I think it's an opportunity. Because what I have heard and I've tried to listen from people of color within this tradition is multiple stories of exclusion, of marginalization, of feeling that their voices are not heard. And have not been valued. I'll offer you just one example. A colleague of mine whose name is not a traditionally Anglo name. Who told repeated stories when she was serving in a congregation. Of letting the congregation know how she would like her name to be pronounced. And hearing the congregation get it wrong over and over and over again. Including one person who told my colleague explicitly, no, that's too difficult. I'm going to pronounce your name the way I want to. These stories are uncomfortable to face. But again, the biggest problem is pretending that there's no problem. Some might wish to say, especially those of us who are star-bellied sneeches in a variety of ways around race, around class, around sexual orientation, around gender expression, around neurocognitive capacity, around physical ability or disability, that, oh, this feels so hard. This feels so difficult to do this work. Or, this is a common one, I'm a good person. I have good intentions. Or, this is a big one as well, this work makes me feel guilty. And so I want to avoid it. All I can say to that is what a professor, a professor of the black church and black theology, James Cone, who taught for a very long time at one of the seminaries in which I have a degree, he said, if whites get tired of talking about race, imagine how people of color feel. So that's this moment. That's the midrash. That actually helps the Sneetches wake up and heal and reconcile with each other. They don't get to reconciliation without at first embracing the chaos of their culture. 
Some of you have heard me tell a story from my first congregation that has left a lasting impact on me, on me much more so than it did in the moment. But this was 15, maybe 16 years ago. And there was a guy in the congregation, good guy, good person, who whenever we would wade into controversial matters, could be about race or gender or the late 90s, sexual orientation. We actually, we could be talking about the budget. <laughs> this fellow would say, I'm not comfortable with this. And the whole conversation would <laughs> shut down. Now, I was in one of these meetings. I actually think it was a budget meeting. And those of you who know me know how much I love dealing with congregational budgets. So I was already feeling really comfortable, right? And I said without anger, but pretty firmly and pretty directly, when did we promise each other comfort? Too often that is the ultimate star-bellied snitch value that we're supposed to be comfortable that defensiveness that so many of us can hear in our voices when we start to feel guilty or we start to say, but, 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 but I'm a good person. I heard this a few years ago on social media when uh, I think it was after the atrocity, the shooting in California, I believe in, um, not Sacramento, Santa Barbara. And women started to come forward and tell their stories of sexual assault and sexual harassment. And so often the response and those of us who identify male was not all men, not me. That's a way of shutting down the conversation. Rather than listening, which if we, in any ways, are star-bellied snitches, is incredibly important. Recently, we had a group here at Wellsprings, a group that I have heard from a whole bunch of different people was really powerful and transformative. It was called Waking Up White. It was about a book of that same title, about people recognizing all the ways in which whiteness, about having white skin confers privilege and a sense of superiority and a sense of supremacy. And one of the people in this group, I asked them in preparing for this message to share their experience with me so I could share it with all of you. One of the people in this group was asked a question that first night. So are you white? And their first response was yes. Oh, but not that. <laughs> T-H-A-T. Not that kind of white person. Not the racist, hateful kind. But here's the thing. At the same time that this person recognized their need to differentiate themselves, they were trying to call attention to how good they were. And somehow they weren't bound up in the system that is so painful for all of us, but in very different ways. This is a really challenging teaching that we see in all kinds of ways in our society right now. The idea that we are isolated individuals only to look out for ourselves. In fact, it's really dominant in our political discourse right now. Some of you remember who Margaret Thatcher was. At one point, uh, she was saying and critiquing people who were critiquing the system, the economic system. And she said they are casting their problems at society. And, you know, she actually said these words, folks. You can look this up and, you know, there's no such thing as society. There are individual men and individual women and there are families. That is a very limited view of who we are as human beings. In fact, this is one of the things that happened in the Waking Up White group, in which one of the members of that group reflected on her own experiences growing up as dirt poor with deeply bigoted parents. And the family was able to climb out of poverty. And one of the things she read in the book provided an explanation for that. 
The only, only capitalized, the only reason that my family escaped this life of poverty was that my dad used the GI Bill to buy us a modest house in a newly built suburban development when he got out of World War II. We would never, all caps, have been able to buy this house without that help. And I know now if I had not been born white, my family would have continued to live in the established cycle of poverty. See, the GI Bill was not open to non-white people. Neither, by the way, was Social Security when it was first passed as well, too. These are the things they don't tell us. These are the things we have to be responsible for learning, especially if we claim star-bellied snitch status and want to wake up. There is society, there is culture, and it impacts us all. There was a special on PBS a couple of decades ago. I took a look at research from neonatologists. Neonatologists, I may be mispronouncing that word. They take a look at low birth weight in children and babies. And they take a look at premature births. One of the things that these neonatologists based in Chicago found, and you can look this up, look it up on PBS. I think it's called When the Bow Breaks is the story, is that black women have much higher rates of low birth weight and premature babies. And it doesn't even have anything to do with social economic status. It actually obtains at the level for African-American women who've gone to college, who have all the access and all the resources that we associate with class privilege. But still, something, something was causing many, not all, of course, we're talking in the aggregate, their babies to be born low birth weight or premature, much more than researchers would suspect. Now, here's the thing with scientific studies. Can't draw exact conclusions. But looking at the social context, the researchers found that there is something about being a black woman in this society that causes stress, that expresses itself on a biological level. Some of you might have heard the term microaggressions. It's one of those words that those people who are star-bellied snitches and want to maintain their star-bellied status and don't want to pay attention to stuff, they would say, oh, microaggressions. You know, the questioning of someone's credentials, the following someone of a certain color around a store. Snowflakes do that. Hear that term, snowflakes? Social justice warriors, the politically correct. Well, imagine generation upon generation. Don't imagine it because it's happened, and it is happening. The stress this takes upon bodies is real. It has nothing to do with political correctness. It has to do to recognizing that there is a society and there is a culture. I mean, just later this month, or coming up later this month, we're going to celebrate Memorial Day, right? And that's a sacred day for many of us as we recognize those from the past who have given their lives in service to this country militarily. But the thing is, we don't get to claim the good things about the past without claiming all of the past. And part of that past is what white supremacy still does to us. Especially those of us who are star-bellied sneeches, if we want to wake up. This is the moment when we hear studies like this, we don't have to dismiss it. We don't have to look for outs. We can get curious. We can listen. We can start to pay attention to the catastrophic still effects, still here effects, still present effects of multi-generational trauma. Because that's what this is. Trauma. 
This is one of the things from the Waking Up White group that one of the participants said, I have such a greater understanding now of how we got to where we are today, and it is frustrating and maddening, and it is heartbreaking, to say the least. To use two terms that are often juxtaposed with each other, but I believe absolutely belong with each other, spiritually speaking, the only way we get the grace, all of us, the only way we get the grace of new freedom and reconciliation, like the speeches got somehow really quickly, We don't get it that quickly, obviously. The only way we get the grace of new freedom is by waking up to the full realization of our collective karma. Some of you know who this is, if you put up that photo. Ta-Nehisi Coates. I've quoted from him probably more than any other single writer over the last year and a half. That is him with his son. Samori, when Samori was 15. And Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, for which he has gotten so much justifiable notice, is Between the World and Me, in which he writes to his son about all of his fears, his concerns, about what it is to be a black body, what it is to be a marginalized body in this culture. He also writes about what he would say, or what I'm interpreting today as the star-bellied sneak culture, which are the dreamers, those of us who don't want to wake up, who would only believe the myths about American history and the American present and don't want to embrace the chaos. So I thought of Ta-Nehisi Coates this past week because he wrote this to his 15-year-old son when I hope all of us saw and at least stopped for a moment, if not wept tears, over this face. Jordan Edwards, 15 years old, murdered because of this crazy-making system, like so many others. If we want reconciliation, not cheap grace, there was no way around this young man's life and his death. If we want to wake up, especially if we are star-bellied sneak status in any way, love costs us. And this is an act of love to wake up. Reverend Lee, last week in her message, quoting Pope Francis, quoting Mother Teresa, talked about a quote of Mother Teresa's that said, love on a certain level really does cost us. It costs us our easy consciences. It costs us not believing myths or letting go of myths about equality under the law. I'm not talking guilt. I'm asking us to embrace heartbreak so that love might pour forth from the broken places within us. And we might trust something deeper than just what the culture tells us about who counts and who does not. So I'm going to share with you right now is something I share with hesitance, not because I am ashamed of it, but actually because I am proud of it. And I'm sharing it with you with hesitance because I screw up all the time as a person who has star-bellied stench status within the society. I screw up all the time. I react out of guilt. I react out of defensiveness. 
And here's one place where I didn't. And it's about gender. And it's about something that happened here at Wellsprings. Some of you know, if you've been around for a while, that Wellsprings, we've gone through a transition. I used to be the lead minister. Lee used to be assistant minister. And a year ago, we were moving towards a new form of co-ministry in which we would both be three quarters time in a co-ministry of equals and moving away from the prior CEO uh, model that we had here. And I was the CEO. Again, if you've been around for a while, you know that I was ready to move on from that role. And I believe the congregation was more than ready for me to move on from that role. The board asked me as outgoing lead minister, we had to take a look at next year's budget. And although this was their choice to make, and it is their choice to make, what was my request to be paid coming up within the new co-ministry system? Now, there's a fair case to be made that I've been here longer and I have more time in the ministry that Reverend Lee did. And I've got fewer earning years in front of me than Reverend Lee does. And I really had to search my conscience. What mattered to me? And I requested pretty strongly of the board that if this was going to be a co-ministry, a ministry of equals with equal authority, that it was essential to me that Reverend Lee and I be paid the same. This has absolutely nothing to do with how much I think of Reverend Lee, and I think greatly of her. It has nothing to do with me being nice or me being kind or me wanting to get a gender ally cookie. (laughs) (laughs) This has to do with the fact of what I trust. And yes, it has cost me. Not a ton of money. We don't pay us that much. (laughs) It's the truth, folks. You don't try to pay us badly either. It's just not that much. I had to know what I would trust. And the truth is, what I want to trust in this world, and Wellsprings is a part of this world, is a way of sharing power that so often is diminished. And i got to tell you, my ego... My recovering, star-bellied, sneech ego wrestled with this. My dad was an executive. Even as I was unhappy in the executive role here at Wellsprings for a decent amount of time, even if we did great ministry together during those years, and we did, and I did, I was pretty unhappy in it. But, you know, the ego is a clingy thing. (laughs) And I had to decide what I trusted more. And that was the way I could express it. And I think the board made the right decision, and Reverend Lee and I are paid the same package. To move against any of us, the dominant group model of ego and self and specialness, the poisons that poison our culture so deeply, it means finding something else to trust. I trust universalism. This is how I teach universalism, the basics of it, that there is a love so special that none of us need to be special to be loved. I don't think there's anything more countercultural than that in this culture that wants to make us and treats us as in-groups and out-groups depending upon all kinds of different ways of stars and the faults in those star systems. And so, yes, to trust universalism is a letting go, but it's also an embracing and a being embraced. And I want to turn to the final quote from the Waking Up White group. 
in which they were talking about hearing another spiritual community working with this book, Waking Up White, who rejected working with it. They dismissed it as just trying to make them feel guilty, and so they didn't engage. But this person reflecting upon the other people in their group said, witnessing and experiencing feelings of regret, embarrassment, guilt, and remorse, and, here's the word I want to underline, redemption, was awesome. The biggest trouble for so many of us is pretending that there is no trouble. Exactly as I say, every memorial service and funeral service that I do, we're not here today for closure. Acceptance and opening of the truth of this person's life, acceptance and opening to the truth of the whole of this culture, not closure, but acceptance. This is how this niche has got to reconciliation. We are taking longer but still we can use them as an aspiration. This work of facing all the stuff, especially if we struggle or want to turn away, this is where the redemption, which is just another word for wholeness, lies. It is also the exact work that keeps this community from merely being a club, a social club. We're not. We're not a club. We're not a family. We are a spiritual community. And the best thing we can offer to each other, and I believe to the world, is not comfort, but healing. Amen. May you live in blessing. Pray with me. God, invite us into the maelstrom. Invite us into the storm. Invite us, as the old beautiful hymn says, to wade into the waters where the waters are troubled so that we can engage and we can heal and we can bring forth that original blessing that is this life already, that there is a love so special that embraces us all. It has always been true and yet so often denied. May we live into that truth together here, to vow to do this work together here, to embrace our challenges, to embrace our differences, to embrace our pains together here. This work isn't for anyone else. It's for us. It is for everyone. May we lift up and engage our part of it. Amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.